This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Mid-high is in here this morning. Uh, the rest of you going to class can head off to class. Didn't seem like many. It's all right. Uh, let's get started this morning. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this day, this chance to gather together and worship you. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your gift. God, please help us to understand you more. Help us to understand how your righteousness is revealed. God, increase our faith this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Happy New Year's Eve. Thank you. It's the time of year that naturally lends itself towards reflection over the past year and setting goals for the new year. Most of us are familiar with the idea of New Year's resolutions. Some of us take them seriously and set ambitious yet attainable goals for the upcoming year. These are the Jonathan Edwards types. They'll write down 70 or so resolutions, including a resolution to read their resolutions weekly and to grade themselves on how well they're fulfilling their resolutions. Some of us might feel safer if we just mock the idea altogether. Looking forward to seeing those who boldly declared their resolutions fail sometime in the next week. Definitely not because we're sure we would never uphold any new resolutions ourselves. My own New Year's resolution, if I may be so bold to tell you all, is to grow a little bit taller this year. Sorry. We'll be in Romans this morning, Romans chapters 1 through 3. We've got a lot to get through this morning, so go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, if you will. Uh, previously, uh, we went through the first half of chapter 1 in Romans. Uh, as a review, Paul had never been to the church in Rome before he sent this letter. He was anxious to visit, but had been delayed a couple of times and felt the need to write to them regarding the gospel. That is the whole point of the book of Romans, is to explain the gospel. We talked about how uh, the gospel uh, accomplishes three things. The gospel is how the obedience of faith is brought about for all the nations. The gospel is how to reap a harvest and the gospel is how people are saved and sustained. Last time we ended with the culmination of Paul's introduction with the thesis of the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17 from chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live 
by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. How? How is God's righteousness revealed? Fortunately for us, Paul takes the rest of the book of Romans to explain the gospel. So he doesn't waste very much time at all. He jumps right in and tells us how it is revealed. And as we go through this morning, listen for ways that God's righteousness is revealed. If it's manifested, if it's shown, all of those terms will come in uh, to play this morning. The first thing is that the righteousness of God is revealed in His wrath against all unrighteous, all the unrighteousness of men. Let me say that one more time. The righteousness of God is revealed in His wrath against all unrighteousness of men. Beginning with verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their righteousness, unrighteousness, I apologize, suppress the truth. Is this intentional? Let's keep reading. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These ungodly and unrighteous men are without excuse. They attributed eternal power and divinity to things that were made instead of Almighty God. There are no caveats given. There's no extenuating circumstances given. All these unrighteous men are without excuse. What about communities that haven't heard about God and the Bible without excuse? What about people that are not able to understand without excuse? What can be made known to them about God is plain because God has shown it to them. All right, but today we don't see people attributing eternal power and divinity to things that were made, do we? Instead of serving the maker of heaven and earth, we see these men serving other things. We are built to serve. We are built to serve. As the great prophet Bob Dylan said, you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Often we see today that people do not honor God or give thanks to Him, but instead honor and therefore serve other things. So what does it look like for the wrath of God to be revealed against these ungodly men? Let's continue and notice that three times Paul says that God gave them up. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, 
and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, number two, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. God gave up these ungodly people to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies. He gave them up to dishonorable passions and gave them up to a debased mind. Verse 32 sums it up. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see this in our culture today? Do you see this celebrated in our culture today? From Netflix's top kids cartoon, recently having a small boy dance in front of his two gay dads with a tutu and a tiara, to college campuses actively mocking Christianity and promoting nihilism. I mean, we have a whole pride month to celebrate dishonorable passions. It is clear that our country, that our culture, not only gives approval for such things, but even demand public approval from everyone. God's wrath is revealed by giving them over to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. God's righteous decree, which is known to them, is that those who practice such things deserve to die. The righteousness of God is revealed in his wrath against the ungodly, and they have no excuse. The righteousness of God is revealed in his wrath against the ungodly, and they have no excuse. As this was read in the church in Rome, Paul anticipates that following the description of the sins of these ungodly men, someone in his congregation would begin to judge They might hear the description of the sins and think to themselves, well, I'm not that bad. And sit a little taller in their seat. Maybe even look around the congregation and try and identify the individuals that belong in this category of ungodly men. Who are these ungodly men? That's what Paul's going to talk about in the next chapter and a half. This category of ungodly men. Who are these people? There was a significant number of devout Jews in the church of Rome at the time that agreed with Paul condemning those that practice such things. After all, those dirty Gentiles deserve what's coming to them. Let's continue in chapter 2. Therefore, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. 
For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. The righteousness of God is revealed in his wrath against those who judge. They are guilty of the same things and have no excuse. Tribulation and distress for every human being, Jew or Gentile, who does evil, Glory, honor, and peace for everyone, Jew or Gentile, who does good. The key difference between those that undergo tribulation and distress and those that receive glory, honor, and peace are those who do evil and those who do good. Not whether or not they're Jew or Gentile. So, so far, we know that the ungodly men at the end of chapter 1, you know, contain like pagans and like the worst also, now, beginning of chapter 2, it contains people that judge those pagans that are in that evil category. This would definitely rub uh, some of the Jews in Paul's congregation the wrong way. You know, hey, wait a minute, Paul. Don't you know that the Jews are God's chosen people? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know we're the chosen ones who have the law of God? We're not like those pagans. We're not like those people back up in chapter 1. We're special. If we continue in verse 11, For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Might think about written by who. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure 
that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embody, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Boasting in, have, boasting in having the law only condemns oneself. It is only the doers of the law that are justified. But Paul, what about those of us that are circumcised? That's doing something that's part of the law. Like we, we're circumcised. Isn't that special? Doesn't circumcision have any value? Continuing in verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Paul's time, many Jews put their trust of salvation in knowledge of the law. They put their trust in their circumcision. They put their trust in the works that they had done. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Today, many Christians fall into the same trap of putting their trust into works that they have done. In chapter 1, we read about how God turned over the unrighteous men to a debased mind. The first verse in chapter 2 stated that those that judge are in the same category of unrighteous men. When we were back in chapter 1 a few minutes ago, when you heard some of the unrighteousness in chapter 1, did you feel judgment? Like, I'm not that bad. And then in chapter 2, when it says that you are in the same category if you are one of those that judge, did you feel any excuses come to your mind? Almost reflexively? Like, okay, wait, I get it, I get it. We're all sinners, I get it, I get it. But this should be a warning to you. I'm not that bad. 
we might not put our same trust in the law and circumcision as the Jews in Paul's time did. But we might say, I'm not that bad. I go to church every Sunday. Well, almost every Sunday. My whole family's baptized. When I talk to Pastor Grant, I make sure to complain about sinners worse than I am so that he could vouch for me too. I'm not that bad, like a good Christian. I don't drink that much. I don't swear that much. I don't even watch inappropriate movies that much. I'm not that bad. I'll promise to do better. Do you feel those things in your mind? That line of thinking is about as effectual as my New Year's resolution to grow taller. This is your pride. This is you trying to justify yourself by your own works. That's self-righteousness. It's like someone in hell living in a cul-de-sac looking down on someone else that doesn't live in nice, as nice of a cul-de-sac in hell. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or of what value is circumcision? Or for us, what value is regularly attending church? Or getting baptized? Or not drinking, swearing, or watching inappropriate movies? that much what's the advantage much in every way to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God what if some were unfaithful though does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means let God be true though everyone were a liar as it is written that you may be justified by in your words and prevail when you are judged But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and their condemnation is just. Paul acknowledges that the Jews in that time have a distinct advantage since they were the ones entrusted with oracles of God. But does this advantage help them in any way to avoid the wrath of God? Verse 9, what then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul hammers the point home. No one, no one at all, not even one. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul has expanded the category of unrighteous men and ungodly men. Not only does it include pagans, those that judge, but it includes every human being. No one belongs to the category of those that do good. No one belongs to the category of those that will receive glory, honor, and peace. Everyone belongs to the category of those that do evil. Everyone belongs in the category of those that will receive tribulation and distress. The righteousness of God is revealed through his wrath against unrighteous men. And Paul's argument is that this includes pagans, those that judge the pagans, and every other human being. The bar for righteousness is be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The righteousness of God is revealed in his wrath against everyone. For none are good and they have no excuse. This stops every mouth from boasting. This stops every mouth from making excuses. There is nothing you can say. You are in the category of unrighteous men. And the righteousness of God in accordance with the law will be revealed in his wrath against the ungodly. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Praise be to God. The righteousness is revealed apart from the law. By works of the law no man will be justified. But now, apart from the law and through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, men are justified by God's grace as a gift. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. According to the law, he was the only one who lived the perfect life and deserved the glory, honor, and peace for those that do good, back in chapter 2, verse 10. But Christ died for us. This was the great exchange that Kim was talking about earlier. Christ died for us. He took on the wrath of God in our place. The wrath that was rightly stored up for you and me. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Those of us that put our faith in Jesus are saved from the just punishment of our sins. This is the righteousness of God revealed through faith. 
that he is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Later in chapter 5, Paul reiterates this magnificent truth like this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. The righteousness of God revealed apart from the law, by him being just and the justifier of the one that has faith in Jesus. Paul concludes chapter 3 with this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow this law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Our boasting is destroyed. Our boasting is destroyed since we are justified by faith apart from the law. But how do we uphold the law? The answer is back in our thesis for the book of Romans. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We are justified by faith for faith. This faith that justifies us apart from the law is the same faith we need in order to live and uphold the law. Paul will expound on this more in the next few chapters, but we're running out of time today. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you currently have no way to avoid the wrath of God. I strongly urge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. It's the only way to be justified in the sight of God. It's the only way to be saved from your sins and the wrath of God. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, root out the self-righteousness of your judging heart. Understand how much righteousness you bring to the table. Hint, it's none. Understand that the faith that saved you now sustains you. You have been saved from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In response, let's stand 
and sing praise to the God who revealed his righteousness apart from the law to justify those who put their faith in Jesus.